This morning we'll be in Galatians chapter 6, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Um, If you don't, there should be some Bibles around you underneath seats somewhere. Um, Please go ahead and grab one of those and turn to Galatians 6. Um, While you're turning there, I'd love it if you would pray with me as we begin this morning. Father, we are grateful to be able to gather together. Um, We're grateful for your word and that it is powerful, that it is strong, that it is... um, always able to and always does accomplish the purposes um, that you have for it. And God, we just pray, and even as we just sang, that you would open our hearts to be aware of your Spirit's presence, that your Spirit, as you promised, would guide us into truth this morning, would convict us of sin, would show us Christ in your word this morning. Um, And God, I just pray that, that you would have your way, that you would speak through me, and that you would speak to all of us this morning, um, showing us what you say in your word, what it means for us, and how we respond to it. Um, God, just that you would guide us in in every step of this morning. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So since we're going to be jumping in to the sixth chapter of Galatians, we'll do just um, a little bit of prep work on what the first five chapters of Galatians are talking about. Um, It is written by the Apostle Paul. Just about all of Paul's letters are um, a lot of theology, a lot of truth, a lot of instruction and foundational things in the first part of his letters. And then it's a lot of application. It's what all of those truths mean for us in the second part of his letters. And so um, the text that we're looking at in Galatians 6, 1 through 10 is a lot of just direct. These are things that you do. These are, um, we're going to call them instructions today. It's practical teaching, um, a couple of the foundational things that are really key, that are really prominent in the first uh, several chapters of Galatians um, are, the first one is just around getting the gospel right. Um, The gospel is the good news of Jesus and what happened. um, We see uh, Paul's initial, uh, I guess, visits to the the places that are in this region of Galatia where this letter was written to are recorded in Acts 13 and 14. And in those chapters, we see some pretty heavy persecution against Paul while he's there. He's driven out of cities. Um, There are people there that are not supporting what he's saying. There's Jewish people there that um, basically what what Paul is preaching and this gospel of Jesus is saying that Jesus has fulfilled the law. Faith in Jesus is all that's needed to be right with God and that circumcision and the outward things of, of Jewish culture really don't matter. Like, they don't save you. They're, they're not able to save you. Christ is what saves you. And so this offended them greatly, and so they, there was this tons of persecution. He was driven out of these places. And then this letter that we're going to be looking at is really a response to some other things as well, but in large part, it's a response to that teaching that after Paul left, the Jews were trying to persuade people, no, actually, these outward things do matter. Like, yes, you can believe in Jesus and have faith in him, but you also have to do this and you also have to do this. And the truth is, anytime we add something to the gospel message, it dilutes and distorts and it robs the gospel of its power. Because if you have to add anything to the belief that faith in Christ will save you and faith in Christ alone, then you're saying that faith in Christ isn't enough. If you have to add something to it, you're saying that it's not sufficient. And the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us, his life and death and resurrection are sufficient to save us. So we don't need to add anything to that. 
So that's the, the first kind of foundational thing that Paul's laying out um, to uh, the churches in Galatia here is that um, salvation is found in Christ alone by faith in him and the outward things of the Jewish law can't save you. Um, the second thing is there's a very particular way in which Paul is addressing the people, these churches in Galatia, that I think is important for us to recognize and to see a, a, some imagery of how we should view the church, of how we should view the body of Christ. And so I would just ask, what do you think about when you think about church, about the church, right? There are some things that are practical, like we could think about this gathering. You may think about a particular place in the church where you grew up in or where you go or whatever it may be. There are all kinds of things we can think about when we think of church. And scripture has a, a number of different images of different illustrations, so to speak, that help us understand what the church is and how the church relates to Jesus, right? And so the first one that we see in Ephesians chapter 5 is there's this imagery that the church is a bride and that Christ is the groom and that Christ loved and gave himself up for his bride, the church. And so there's this imagery of the relationship between Christ and church being like marriage, Really, it's the other way around. It's really the marriage relationship is like the relationship of Christ and the church, but there's still that imagery, that analogy of the bride of Christ and Christ as the groom. There's also, in 1 Corinthians 12, this imagery of the church being a body and Christ as the head. So all of us being members of the body are different parts. We have different giftings. We have different roles. We have different things that we do within the body, but we're all one body. We're all connected, and Christ is the head of the body. So in Galatians, what is that thing? Because it's, it's not particularly that bride and groom analogy. It's not particularly the body and the head analogy. In Galatians, the picture that Paul is trying to portray of the church is that the church is a family. And so he constantly uses familial language. He refers to the Galatians as brothers. He talks about us being heirs of the promise of God, of us being heirs of salvation, he talks about this thing that happens when you put your faith in Christ, that yes, you're saved. Yes, you're justified, right? You're declared righteous. God says you are innocent because Christ took your place. You become a new creation. These are all things we know about. And then particularly in Galatians, then Paul writes that we are adopted as sons into the family of God. I think... I. I heard a, a theologian, Mike Reeves, talk once about how the reason it says we're adopted as sons and not sons and daughters is because in that culture, sons were heirs and daughters weren't heirs. But in Christ, male and female, we're adopted as sons. We are all heirs in Christ, male and female, which is pretty awesome. So if it's weird for you ladies to think of yourselves being adopted as sons, it's actually a pretty awesome thing. Um, and us guys have to consider that we're part of the bride of Christ, so it evens out, right? <laughs> So it's there on both sides, but there's this language of adoption, right? So we know that what happens um, when we're saved, when we put our faith in Christ is, is so much, like it, it changes everything. We're a completely new creation and we have a completely new standing. We have a completely new position in a new family, in the family of God. And so we see in Galatians that Paul wants us to think about church, about the church, the body of Christ as a family, that God is our father, that Jesus is our elder brother, and that we are all brothers and sisters in the household of faith, which is a term that Paul uses in the text we'll look at today. 
So with that in mind, if you turn to Galatians 6, I'd love to ask you just to stand to your feet in honor of the word of God and I'll um, read Galatians 6 verses 1 through 10. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You can have a seat. So as we look at these 10 verses this morning, we're going to look at four instructions for the household of faith. So as I said, these things are are really practical. They're really things that you do. um, And we're going to think about them all in this category of the household of faith and the family of God that we as believers, if you've put your faith in Christ, are a part of a family, that you are a brother or sister, that you have a father who's perfect and loving and good in our great God. And so we'll just jump in here. Um, The first point in verses one and two is just to seek the gentle restoration of brothers and sisters who are caught in sin. These points aren't like brilliant. They're pretty much just straight out of the text. You can see that in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so there's this thought process, which I think is, is quite different from maybe some of our earthly families and, and really with what our culture in America says, which is when someone's in a big mess of sin that we should bear that burden with them, that we should come alongside of them and help them. I think oftentimes, I know at least my tendency, maybe yours as well, is not, not to necessarily step into those situations, but to step away from them and say, that's not my business. I'm not going to get involved with that. That's, that's their thing, and they're going to handle that, right? So this, this is a difference in the way that the household of faith works compared to maybe the way that some of our earthly households may have operated currently or growing up or whatever it may be. We all have different experiences and different backgrounds when it comes to family, and so that's going to make us look at things a little bit differently. But here we're, see, we're, we're able to see that if we have a brother or sister who's caught in any transgression, that you who are spiritual should restore him. And so it says you who are spiritual. So we should all be striving for spiritual maturity, Right? So this isn't just a designation that there only should be a few people or it should just be the pastors or it should just be a few select leaders that help in this process of restoration. It should be all of us that are striving for that. But there's a caution that's, giving, that's given here to keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. 
And so there is absolutely, when you're dealing with sin issues, when you're dealing with burden sharing and burden bearing, there's an element of spiritual maturity that's necessary so that you are not tempted to fall into that same sin. And so that's necessary. And so Paul cautions with that. Now this word restore in the original language has this feeling or this connotation to it of surgery. It has this image of there being a detached limb that needs to be restored, that needs to be reconnected. And I think from that, just that thought and that imagery, we can gather that restoration from an issue of sin, of transgression, requires great care. It requires, as it says blatantly in the text, a spirit of gentleness. It requires precision. It requires time to heal and to recover and to recuperate from. It's not a simple one-time boom, it's done thing. Justification is, when we put our faith in Christ, it's a one-time thing where we are counted as righteous before God, but as we deal with and put to death sin in our lives, it's a process. We call that sanctification. It also says it's to be done in a spirit of gentleness, which connects it back to chapter 5. The end of chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and one of those is gentleness. And so that tells us that this restoration process requires evidence of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. It's one of the marks of being spiritual or being spiritually mature, as this is referencing, is that you're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is gentleness. I I wouldn't want like a rough, harsh surgeon reattaching a limb, right? I don't think any of you would either. It's going to cause more damage than good if if they're not going to be gentle and careful in that process. So that's important. And then going into verse 2, Specifically, we're told to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so the law of Christ that it's talking about here, I think, is referencing to the, the greatest commandments, the, the law that Jesus gave, when you could sum up the whole law in two things, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so bearing each other's burdens, and particularly with what this text is saying, Burdens that are the result of sin. Not just, I guess, more common, just things that are part of life, but specific burdens that are the result of sin. Part of fulfilling the law of Christ is to bear those burdens. Part of exhibiting love in our family of faith is to bear those burdens with one another. Now, I've thought about before that there's just a difference between, and I'm sure you can relate, there's a difference between Helping someone that's suffering because of circumstances that are outside of their control or because sin that was committed against them or because something that happened that they didn't directly cause. Like if, if there was trouble with a pregnancy, if there was a miscarriage or something of that nature, or if a family member or a friend sinned against a person and they're struggling and suffering because they were done wrong in some way, I find it fairly easy to have compassion for someone that's suffering because someone else did something to them. It's a whole different story, and I find it much more difficult to have compassion on someone that's suffering because of something that they blatantly did, because of sin that they committed. So my tendency, and this is a sinful tendency, but oftentimes in those situations, my tendency is, well, you're getting what you deserve, right? Those are the consequences of your actions, You made your bed lie in it. Like, that's what happens. And so I think that's the human side of me that thinks that. And I think it's really important for us to think about and remember here that 
we're told to bear each other's burdens that are the result of sin. And there's only one, really, example of that in Scripture, and it's a pretty big one. Because if you consider and you really think about what Christ has done for us on the cross, He bore more of a burden than we ever could bear for all kinds of sin that He never committed. He bore emotional pain, physical pain, and the full wrath of His Father God as a punishment for our sins. And so this example and this motivation that we can look to when it's difficult to bear burdens, when it's difficult to have compassion on someone that's suffering because of their sin, should come from dwelling on what Christ has done for us. To come from thinking about all of the sins that I've committed and how Christ has paid the price for those, on he, how he has fully and completely borne my burden for those things. And we can never bear the burden of sin for each other in the same way that Christ has, right? He has paid that penalty and paid that price in a way that we never could. We're not, we're not called here to do what Jesus did because it's done. He said it's finished. That work is complete. But we are called to come alongside one another and to bear each other's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ, that we love one another, to be willing to bear these burdens for one another and to get in the mess of life with one another and to take things on that aren't ours to take on because we have a love and a compassion and a care for our brothers and our sisters. And then one other thing with this, as we think about, this is just kind of a logical thing, it's not in the text, but it's impossible for someone to bear your burden unless you share your burden. And so if you have a burden that you don't make known to the church, to your family, then they can't bear it because it's not known. And so that may be something that some of you may need to consider if you have a burden that's heavy, that's weighing on you. You need to share it with your family so that we can do what this text is calling us to do, so that we can be the type of family, this household of faith that we're commanded to be. So in order for us to bear each other's burdens, we have to share each other's burdens. We have to verbalize it. We have to make it known. The second thing here um, is to strive for personal humility. And this, these next few verses, really a lot of these verses, I think are, are kind of odd at first glance when you first read them. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to explain at least what I think they mean as best I can. But if you start reading in verse 3, um, It says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So what is that talking about following up this command to bear each other's burdens and to restore brothers and sisters who are caught in sin? Why is it talking about, you know, thinking you're something when you're nothing and testing your own work? Like, what is all that about? I read a commentary on this particular section, and a commentator wrote this, which I think is really helpful. He says, Self-conceit, the chief hindrance to forbearance and sympathy toward our fellow men, must be laid aside. And so if you think about pride, if you think about thinking of yourself highly, it it will totally wreck and and hinder what we're told to do in verses 1 and 2 if we have this pride where we think much of ourselves. Right? Pride can keep us from sharing our burdens because of what other people might think of us. Pride can keep us from 
humbly helping others that need help because they deserve what they got and I didn't do that, so why should I suffer for it? Pride can keep us from helping them because we're above that or we're beyond that. This self-conceit, this thinking something of ourselves when we're really nothing will completely hinder burden sharing in the body of Christ. And so that's why Paul's writing this. And additionally, one other point he brings out here in verse 4, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So first glance, that kind of sounds like, okay, so I just need to look at all the good things that I do so I can feel good about myself because of me and not because of others. But that's not really what he's saying. He is saying don't compare yourself to others. He is saying specifically that your reason to boast should not be in your neighbor. That's the point of verse 4. It doesn't say that your reason to boast should be in yourself, but your reason to boast should not be in your neighbor. So we can all find people. Your neighbor is just pretty much anyone that's around you. you can, we can all find people that make us feel better about ourselves, right? We can all find people where we can say, well, at least I'm not that bad, or at least I didn't do that, or at least whatever, and thus it's going to fuel my pride if I compare myself to other people in that way. But we know from verse 14 in chapter 6, I'll read this real quick even though it's not in our text, we're not supposed to boast in ourselves either. So Galatians 6, 14 says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So our boasting should not be in our neighbor as a comparison. Our boasting should not be in ourselves because we really have nothing to boast about. Our only boasting, and I think it's important, like we should actively boast in the cross. Boasting in the cross will breed humility. Boasting in ourselves will breed pride. And so being humble, I don't think, is all about just not being prideful, right? Humility is not the absence of pride. Humility is an actual virtue. It's an actual thing that has to be pursued. And boasting in the cross and honestly considering Christ's sacrifice for us, honestly considering our sinfulness that required that sacrifice will breed humility. So it's not, it's not just an option, I don't feel like, to boast in the cross. It's necessary if we're going to battle pride and really grow in humility. And so we see that we shouldn't compare ourselves to one another. We should, in a sense, compare ourselves to Christ and not, not allow that to condemn us, not allow ourselves just to feel awful about ourselves because of that, but to have a strength and a boasting that comes from boasting in the cross, from dwelling on the cross, because we know that we are righteous, but it's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness that we have. And that should bring confidence and humility, not pride. So we see that second thing there to strive for personal humility and how it relates to bearing each other's burdens and why that's important and how pride can hinder that burden sharing and how pride can hinder that restoration process. The third thing here just comes straight from verse 6 to share all good things with those who teach. Right? I'm not I'm not making anything up here. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches, right? It's pretty pretty blatant there. Um, I think it's important to remember as we think about this, I don't know about you, I can jump straight to like paying pastors and all that kind of stuff, which I think is part of this. But I think it's important for us to realize that more than likely the one who teaches that's being talked about here in verse 6 is synonymous with the you who are spiritual in verse 1. 
So most of the time, those that are teaching and in leadership roles are going to be bearing burdens. They have their own burdens to bear, and they're going to be bearing other people's burdens in part of that restoration process. Not exclusively, it's not just them, but if you're in a teaching role, then you should be spiritually mature, and you should also be a part of that restoration process. And so I think what Paul's reminding them to do here is to make sure that those who are bearing burdens, heavy burdens, are cared for themselves. I also, I mean, I think probably the most clear meaning is that pastors who labor vocationally in teaching should be provided for. Their families should be provided for. They shouldn't be hungry and homeless because they serve the church and they serve in a teaching role. So I think that is plain here. And then one application of that that I think we can do maybe probably more often unintentionally than intentionally is to elevate those who teach, pastors and people um, who are in leadership roles to think that they can handle what's thrown at them because, you know, they're strong and they've got it and they can handle all of other people's problems too and everything, that they don't need any help, that they're incapable of also being caught in sin, that they're perfectly fine the way they are and they don't need any help and that's just not the case. So shepherds are sheep as well. Elders in the church that shepherd the body are also sheep in the body. The only shepherd that's not a sheep is Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. He is the, the chief elder in the church globally, right? All other pastors, they shepherd, they function as a shepherd, but they're also sheep. And so I think we have to be really careful not to unintentionally assume or think that, you know, we're, we're thinking poorly of pastors to ask them how they're doing, to ask them what they're struggling with, to ask if we can help them with something, to ask if we can bear a burden for them. This sharing all good things is what the, what the text says. Share all good things with those who teach. That's certainly some material things, and it's certainly some spiritual things. As we think about the benefits of being part of the family of God, we need to make sure that we share those blessings with those who teach and not just share burdens with them. It's really, really important for us to do that. Uh, the fourth thing here comes from verses 7 through 10. This will finish out the text. Is to struggle to do good works and to not give up. So let's just walk through these verses real quick. Verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We'll stop right there for now. Now, at first, that sounds like kind of what I was talking about earlier with the you get what you deserve, right? That's what you sowed, so that's what you're going to reap. Um, and in a sense, that's, that's true. Like there's a, there's, there's a law of nature that there's consequences to actions and there's consequences to sin. But a couple things we need to note is that this, these verses and this whole imagery of sowing and reaping is not a teaching on salvation, it's not a teaching on if you do enough good things, you'll, you'll inherit eternal life. You can work your way to be saved. That's not the point of this. Um, the point of this is to be an encouragement that God rewards us when we walk in obedience to him. And that's true. It's absolutely true that he does that. And so this we should see as an exhortation to continue in good works, not as a opportunity to earn right standing before God because we can't. And Paul's already clearly spelled out in the first five chapters that that's, that that's not the case, right? 
And so part of this sowing and reaping is just this exhortation. And then verse 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so we have that encouragement, and we have this, this command, let us not grow weary. It's like this, it's keep on going. Don't give up. Don't get lazy. Don't stop pursuing this. And that, that's why I use the word struggle. So I think, I think we use struggle wrong, at least in Christianese, you know, language, Bible study, accountability type environments, right? And so the way that I think about the word struggle changed completely. Um, one year when I was in Kenya on a mission trip, went several different times, and we took 80 to 100 kids out of a slum to a camp outside the city and ran basically a Christian camp for them. I had preaching and um, songs and games and everything that a normal camp would have, basically. Um, three meals a day at the camp, which is like one of the biggest things for the people, the kids there that maybe eat once a day if, if they can manage. Um, and so we had these small group discussion times after the preaching times. We'd always go through a book of the Bible, and I don't even remember which book we were going through this particular time. But I was with a small group discussion with four Kenyan guys and a Kenyan leader, and we were talking about sins that we were struggling with. And one of the Kenyans shared that he struggles with a temptation to steal. And I'm like, okay. Then he goes on to explain that his temptation is to steal food because he doesn't have any and he's hungry and his family's hungry and he doesn't know how to get food for him and for his family. So he has this temptation to steal food. And I'm like, okay, that changes things. Like, he's not trying to steal an iPod. He's not trying to steal cigarettes or something. He's trying to steal food. Like, I've never, ever had that temptation. Never even thought about that. And so I'm just kind of stunned. And fortunately wise Kenyan leader and wise person that said, let's put a Kenyan with every American so when they're stunned and don't know what to say, there's somebody there to talk, right? He speaks up and he basically just tells and encourages and exhorts this young man to fight that temptation. And the word he uses is struggle with that. Don't just give in to that temptation to steal. Struggle with it. And I'm thinking, yeah, like, struggle. Like, that's, that's what struggle means. I don't know about you, but I use struggle to, to mask my laziness. When I say I'm struggling with reading my Bible, and really what I'm saying is I'm not reading my Bible. Like, I'm lazy. If you've ever used struggle that way, then, or heard it used that way, then you, you know what I mean. Struggle, by definition, means to proceed with difficulty or great effort. It doesn't mean to... Pretend as if you're fighting something that you're really just giving into, which is how I use it, used to use it. And so this, this idea of struggling to do good works and to not give up means that we should, we should put forth great effort to continue to walk in good works that God has prepared for us, that we should continue with great effort to fight our sin. We should continue with great effort to help others in the fight for their sin as we struggle for the restoration of brothers and sisters who are caught in sin. We should struggle and it be intentional and with great effort share all good things with those who teach. And we should not give up. We should not grow weary because God has promised that there's a harvest, that we will reap a harvest from him, a reward if we do not give up. And so we should struggle in these things. And then verse 10 says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. 
So now we're getting outside of the household of faith. Up until this point, we've been pretty much inside of the household of faith. These are in-house things that we've been talking about among believers, among the family of faith. But now we're told to do good to everyone. And so there's always this element of fulfilling the mission that Christ has given his church to make disciples of all nations and what opportunity comes from doing good to those that are outside of the faith. Whatever that may be, whatever you can think of, whatever would be helpful to someone, whatever would mean something to someone, doing good to them, loving them, caring for them, even though they're not in the family. We still want to love and care for people and have opportunity in that doing good to preach the gospel to them. That's, that's one of the things that when Remedy first started has been and is still a huge part of why we're called Remedy Church. To meet physical needs, to be a remedy to our city in various ways and while we're meeting physical needs, to proclaim the gospel and to tell people how to meet their ultimate spiritual needs. So to do good for them in physical material ways and to do good to them in eternal and spiritual ways by proclaiming the gospel to them. And so we're to do good to everyone, and then it finishes, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And I think a lot of people, at least that I've heard talk, make a too big of a deal about that, especially. Like, it's, yes, it's everyone, and it's the household of faith. You don't have to choose one or the other. A lot of times they're like pinned up against each other, like, well, I can't do it all, so I gotta, I'm just going to focus on the household of faith. Well, that's good, you're commanded to do that, but we're also commanded to do good to everyone, so you need to focus on everyone too. And it does say, as you have opportunity. So we don't need to be overwhelmed with like, we've got to do good to everybody. Like, as you have opportunity. As the opportunity presents yourself, do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so we see here that this, is, this text is bookended. The first word is brothers. And the last words of verse 10 are the household of faith. This book, Galatians, is filled with family references and this text is bookended with them. And so as we wrap up here, I just want to challenge you and remind you of a couple things. The first is to really, truly see the church as a family. Whatever other things you think about when you think about church, whatever other things have been a part of your mindset with church, do you see the church as a family? Jesus was asked one time, or he was in a, in a room, forget the exact context, but he was in a room and someone said, hey, your mothers and your brothers are outside waiting for you. And Jesus responds and says, whoever does my father's will is my brother and sister and mother. And commenting on this, J.R. Vassar writes, blood is thicker than water. Faith is thicker than blood. I love that. We always say, yeah, blood runs thicker than water. Like my family, those are my people. And it's true. And faith, the family of faith, is exactly what I just said. It's a family. And so I want to ask you and I want you to think about how should viewing the church as a family change the way you think about the church? How should it change the way you feel about the church? How should thinking of the church as a family change the way you interact with, the way you engage with the way you love the church. It should impact the way that we think. It should impact the things that we do. So if, you, if Remedy's your home, then 
What does it mean for you to think of the church as a family? Does it mean you need to be more faithful to pray for your family and for the leaders of our family, for our pastors? Does it mean you need to finally try a community group and engage with your family outside of these couple hours on Sunday mornings? Does it mean you need to be more generous with your time or with your money and you need to give more of those things to serve in an area of the church to do something? Does it mean that you need to treasure and value this gathering that we have and it be so important to you that there are just very few things that you'll miss this for because it's more than just a thing that we do because whatever, because it's what we grew up doing, it's because it's what is expected of Christians, it's because people in the culture do it, all of those reasons, it's more than that. This is a gathering of family, of brothers and sisters coming together to worship our Father. It's personal. It's, it's amazing in so many ways when you think of it that way. I was talking to um, a member of the church who's been with us since the beginning, Tim McGarity. Had to have been at least a couple years ago. And he said, we were just talking about worship and singing and whatever. And he's like, yeah, I don't know why, but I just, he probably didn't say, I don't know why. He knows why. But he said, I love to just look around while we're singing. Like, I love to just look at other people. And I'm like, I don't, that's weird. Like, I'd like stare straight ahead or close my eyes. Like, I don't want to see anybody else and get distracted. Like, that's, that was kind of my mindset, right? And I'm like, oh, but that's great. You know, that's great for you. And uh, over time, like, I've, I've started more, and more, like, just to, to look around as we're singing in worship and as we're gathered here as a family and understanding more and more that, like, we, we have six days of the week to have our personal worship time, and we need to, right? When we come together, it's important, and it's so huge that this is a time of corporate worship, that we are gathered together, and that the people that sit next to you and in front of you and behind you and on the other side of the aisle, that they matter and that they're family. And how, it, it just, it, it's amazing. I love how God has made me see this differently and made me not think that, that Tim is weird. Because I'll look around during worship now and my heart gets glad to see other people worshiping our Father. My heart just is overjoyed to see other people that are with me. Like we're together. It's not just me. I'm not alone. Like, I think we just long for that as human beings. Don't we long to be known? Don't we long to be connected to other people, to be in a family? And we have that here. And I think, I think we miss it a lot, and we miss the, the implications of that and how that should make us view this gathering on Sunday morning. And so maybe it doesn't mean you have to look around during worship. Maybe you want to do that. If you don't, that's fine. What, don't like turn around and stare at the person behind you. That will be weird, I promise, right? But maybe you need to do that and just see how other people are engaging and loving our Father and, and allow yourself to be encouraged by that. So we need to see the church's family. And, and I, I listed kind of some things to do if you want to be involved in something that you're not involved in, whether it's serving on a Sunday morning or community group or whatever it would be. You can grab uh, a card that's underneath you Find a card and put your name and information. I don't know what they say or if there's a checkbox for specifically what you want to do, but write on it. You can put it in the offering bowl and we'll be in touch with you this week on how we can connect you um, to that. And then maybe for some of you, you already do a lot of those things. You're already engaged in those things. And this concept of seeing the church's family should just serve 
to be a fresh reminder and invigorate your passion and your love for Jesus and his church and to allow you to do the things that you already do with a greater joy and with a greater love for Jesus because it's not just something you do on your own because whatever. It's something that you do because you're a part of the family and you love our great father and we love one another. Um, Second thing is just to humble yourself. I talked about this before and just want to read a couple things about humility. C.J. Mahaney writes that humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. We need to reflect on the cross of Christ and boast in it, to boast in our weakness and boast in his strength. And boasting in the cross will breed humility. And then the great hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote these familiar words, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Surveying the wondrous cross of Christ pours contempt and pours death on our pride. And it fuels humility in us. And then the third thing, just to exhort you as the Apostle Paul did, to not give up, to struggle, to fight in these things, to not be passive, to not be lazy, but to pursue these things and to proceed with great effort to be a part of the family, to see your brothers and sisters and to bear their burdens and to share your burdens with them and that we would grow as a family of faith together. We're going to respond with some singing. Let me pray for us, um, and then we'll respond in worship together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for being all-powerful and glorious and good. And God, I pray that you would help us to see what it means and how amazing it is that you've made us a family. You'd grow us in our love for you and our love for one another. And God, I pray if there are people here that are not part of the family of faith, that are not part of the household of faith, that you would work in their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would confess their sin, turn from it and turn to Jesus. It's their only hope. Father, you're good. I pray that you would be continuing to work in us as we respond and as we worship you together. I pray in Christ's name.